6 will be the psalm we are in this morning. So we continue to make our way through book one of the Psalms. We come to Psalm 36. You'll notice it has a title or superscript at the beginning that says, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. So this is David writing as he's written. That we have been looking through as well. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, beginning in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, one of the sweet truths that Your Word teaches us is that we have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. The old man has been put to death on the cross And yet, even though he has been put to death, and even though the new man has been placed upon us, which is being renewed after the image of Christ day by day, yet he still clings closely. And the power of the flesh wages war against us every day. As the Apostle Paul said of Satan, he was not ignorant of his schemes, and therefore neither can we be ignorant of his schemes nor the schemes of our flesh. We need to know how fallen, sinful man works. 
We need to know the deceitfulness and the lies that the flesh can tell us. The smooth things that it can speak to us to lead us away from a true knowledge of God. And so, Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we consider this oracle of your servant David, which speaks of the wickedness of man, speaks also of the beauty of your glory. Lord, that we would be able to see the realities of our sin such that we hate them and turn away from them and we would see the majesty of God so that we might turn to Him to embrace You as our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the very first sentence of Calvin's of the Christian religion, his systematic theology that was written during the 1500s, the height and the heart of the Reformation. And he writes this. He says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God, and of ourselves. Wisdom, in other words, requires that we have a sound doctrine of God. That we know Him. That we know Him personally. We know Him truly. We know Him experientially. We know Him biblically. And that we also have a sound doctrine of man, a biblical anthropology, an understanding of the true nature of man. And in this respect, the psalm that we're looking at this morning could truly be called a wisdom psalm according to Calvin's categories because it teaches us these very things. The psalm essentially can be divided into three parts. The first division you have is in verses 1 to 4. And there it reveals to us a biblical anthropology. Which is to say that it shows us the nature of man. What is in him? How does he think? How does he feel? How does he live? What does he love? And what does he hate? And all of this from a prophetic perspective. From the perspective of God speaking through His prophet David, revealing to us how God sees the fallen nature of man. The second division is in verses 5 to 9. And here we find a biblical theology, which is to say it shows us God. It shows us God in all of His beauty, all of His glory, and all of His majesty. 
And the final division is in verses 10 to 12, where we find a biblical eschatology. It shows us there the end of things. It shows us where the world is headed. What is the outcome of man? What is the outcome of the wicked who remain in their wickedness? What is the outcome of the righteous or the godly who trust in the Lord? The foundation of all wise living, as Calvin asserted, necessitates that we know these things. Who God is, who man is, and where all things are going. So we will consider this together this morning. Now, as we look at the very first division of the psalm regarding a biblical anthropology, we need to note that there is some difficulty in translation here. And probably if you've got an ESV Bible, which is what we read out of, you've probably got a note indicating as much. In verse 1, the ESV begins like this. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And this is a, a translation that is following the Old Greek or the Septuagint. But there's also a note that tells us that most all of the Hebrew manuscripts say something a little bit different. They have a different pronoun that's being used. It says not in his heart, but in my heart, which certainly affects the meaning of the verse. The CSB, on the other hand, follows the Hebrew, and it says this, the opening line is an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. And you'll notice also that they use the word oracle in place of speaks in the ESV. And the reason is because the word that is used here, used here for speaks or oracle is a word that virtually always refers to prophetic speech. This week I looked at every single example of this word throughout the Old Testament. I could only find one example where it may not refer to prophetic speech. Virtually every other occasion it does. So what am I talking about here? Well, when you read through the prophets, for example, the prophets often prophesy against particular nations, and you will often read at the beginning of their message something like the oracle concerning Babylon, the oracle concerning Egypt, or Edom, or Judah, or any other Nation. It is an oracle. It is a word that the Lord is declaring prophetically through one of His prophets. This is a word that is not used just for common speech. It is a word that refers to prophetic speech. A word from the Lord. And so I think the CSV actually captures the meaning of this verse best. 
when it essentially translates this as a kind of title, beginning of the psalm. The title of the psalm also refers to David as the servant of the Lord. And as we saw last week, that is often a technical term for a prophet who leads the people of Israel. And David here is speaking specifically as a prophet. And what does he have to say prophetically? What is the oracle that he is about to give? This prophetic declaration from God. What is it about? And he then tells us, it is about the transgression of the wicked. The Lord here, through David, is revealing what is in man. He is revealing His judgments concerning man. You do not have to guess. You do not have to speculate about what God's view of fallen, sinful man is like. You do not have to wait until the final judgment to know what God's verdict is. It is being revealed for us right here and right now. And if you were to hypothetically wait to find out until the last judgment comes, at that point, it will be too late. So it is imperative that we hear and heed God's judgments about sinful man now. And what is the first thing that David says here about the wicked? Verse 1 again. He says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. This here is a summary judgment about man's nature. He does not fear God. He is a fool in the biblical sense of the word because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and he does not fear the Lord. So he is, in the eyes of God, an utter fool. He does not fear Him in any sense of the word. He does not fear Him in the sense of terror, which is certainly an appropriate fear to have of Him who can cast both body and soul into hell. He does not fear Him either in the sense of respect because He has no desire to love God and honor Him. He does not fear Him in the sense of obedience because He despises the Word of God and desires rather to walk in His own ways according to His own mind and His own judgments. The wicked are bound. They are enslaved to their sin. And they love 
their slave master far more than they love the one who could and who would save them from that oppressive slave master. In the book of Romans, in chapters 1 to 3, you'll remember that there, before expounding on the glorious truths of the gospel of salvation, before getting into the particulars about how a man can be made righteous before a holy God and how God justifies sinners by faith, before getting into that glorious good news, Paul has to unpack and lay the foundation of why the good news is needed. And he does so throughout those opening chapters by explaining this very truth. The reality of the sinfulness and fallenness of man. He describes the idolatrous hearts in chapter 1 of the Gentiles or the Greeks. And how that produces all manners of immorality. And he describes in chapter 2 into 3 the hypocrisy of the Jews who practice the very same things that the Gentiles do. Only while they're practicing them, they're preaching against them. He exposes, in other words, the universality of sin that permeates both Jews and Gentiles. If the Jews thought that they were children of God by virtue of being born as the blood offspring of Abraham, Paul's saying, you got another thing coming. Especially when you are living totally contrary to the Word of God. You think that you're the children of Abraham when in fact, as Jesus says, you are children of the devil. Paul exposes the universality of Jew and Gentile sin and he says that all are under sin. And then he quotes at the end of, or in the middle of chapter 3, that string of verses from the Psalms and Isaiah to ground the points that he's been making in the Old Testament Scriptures itself. And the very last verse he quotes comes from this psalm. Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he says that by this, by this testimony of the Scriptures, every mouth is stopped and the whole world is accountable to God. All men are by nature under sin. And all men by nature do not fear God. And in the psalm, we find that this lack of the fear of God, which is the root of man's 
problem then produces certain fruit, certain results, behaviors, certain even inward dispositions and inclinations. Verse 2 says that the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In the original language, the text more literally says that he causes smoothness. He causes flattery for himself in his eyes concerning the finding of his iniquity to hate it. It's somewhat of an awkward statement to the English ear. But the point is this. To find iniquity means that it is seen for what it truly is. It is exposed in all of its heinousness. You see that it looks like a pile of dung. There is no minimizing it. There is no explaining it away. If it is found, the light of God has shone upon it and all of the ugliness of sin is manifest. This is what happens for the righteous. This is what happens for God's people. Further down in verse 9, David says, In your light do we see light. Those who know the Lord fear the Lord and they see as God sees. And one of the things that they see is their sin. They see the reality of their sin. And when they see it, when the godly The righteous by faith, when they see it and it is found, they then respond accordingly to it. They respond to their sin in the same way God responds to their sin. They hate it. To find sin, to see it as it is, necessarily produces a hatred for it. Excuse me. This is what is meant. In verse 2, by the finding of iniquity to hate it. The problem, however, is that the wicked here are unwilling to find and hate their iniquity. They do. They speak smooth things to themselves. They flatter themselves. They assuage their conscience. Like the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs who uses smooth words to seduce the fool, the wicked use smooth words to seduce themselves. They convince themselves that their sin is really not all that sinful. There's other people who have greater sin. 
Other people have, who have sinned far greater than I could ever sin. At least I haven't done this or that. They justify themselves before God. They tell themselves, I have a right to whatever this forbidden fruit is. I'm able to have this. I'm justified in having this. God understands. It will be well with me. He'll forgive me. This is who I am. Sinful man always, always paints himself in the best of lights so that he never sees the sin he loves as something in himself that must be hated. He doesn't want to hate anything in himself. He wants to baptize everything in himself and call upon God to approve everything in himself. You hear this language quite often, even in our day, in many of our cultural battles over various forms of immorality. God made me this way. If I'm made in His image and I have these desires that are wicked, they must be good. Because God made me that way. It's a logic that's totally disconnected from Scripture. From what God has actually revealed most especially about the nature of man and his rebellion. And his corruption of that very image of God. Sinful man always wants to see himself in the best light. He can see things outside of himself to hate, but never inside. Everything that is inside must be preserved. It must be guarded. It must be cared for. And thus, he loses all understanding of what is truly right and good and beautiful. There may be changes that he wants to make to improve the enjoyments he has in this life. Maybe he decides to be more responsible. Maybe he decides to work harder or to be more charitable because he perceives this as, as bringing him more enjoyments in this life. But the sinful mind never comes to a true knowledge of what is good in the eyes of God. For him, what is good is evil, and what is evil is good. And the wisdom that he thinks he has and that he shares with others, even when it comes with a smile on the face and the best intentions he can muster, is nothing more than trouble and deceit. As verse 3 says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. There's no wisdom in him at all. He walks the way of the fool. And then, when we come to verse 4, we see here that every aspect of his being has been corrupted by this sin. His mind is corrupt. His will is corrupt. His affections are corrupt. David speaks first of the wicked man's mind. He says he plots trouble while on his bed. 
literally, iniquity is thought about, is considered while on his bed. Sometimes it is said that when an unbeliever is alone at night, away from all of the various allurements of sin in the world, he knows that he is guilty before God and his conscience troubles him. I've even said such things before. And there is a certain sense, of course, in which this can be true, particularly if the Lord is dealing with a person and can them of their sin. But these words here remind us that this isn't always the case. The wicked here is described as being on his bed. He's all alone. He has himself and his own thoughts as his sole company. And yet even then, he is devising and strategizing and thinking about iniquity. His every thought is corrupt. Theologians refer to this as the noetic effects of the fall. Sin affects the mind. Men not only think irrationally, they not only make all kinds of logically fallacious reasoning, they not only are unable many of the times to draw correct conclusions from proper premises, but he not only thinks irrationally, he thinks always immorally. His mind has been darkened by the counsel of sin. David speaks, speaks secondly of the corruption of the will. The wicked, he says, sets himself in a way that is not good. He has no wisdom to do good. And thus, what he resigns himself to, what he is resolved always to do, is evil. This is one of the truths that I think is often missed when people are debating about the nature of something like the human will and whether men have a free will. And if by free will you mean that man has the capacity in himself to will to either do what is good or evil before God, that it is this neutral part of him that has been untouched and uncorrupted by the fall, untouched by the sovereignty of God, well then the biblical answer to that question is clear. He does not have a free will. Not in that sense. His will is set. It's fixed towards a particular target. An end which is evil. It is established, the psalm says, in the way that is not good. His choosing will always be towards rebellion. And neither is it the case that He wants to do good. But He simply can't. Sometimes 
You may conceive of it like this, right? If, if, if he could, if he, he's, he's, he's bound by the, the, the chains of sin and he wants to do good, but he can't. That's not the case either. He can't do good and he can't please God because he won't. He has no intention to. He has no desire to. There's nothing in him that's alive. The whole of his nature, as Paul says, is dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. He is a corpse. Unable to do what is pleasing to the Lord. And David speaks thirdly about his affections being correct. He says the wicked does not reject evil. And the word he uses for reject has the sense of rejecting something with hatred, spurning something. God promises, for example, not to utterly destroy Israel in the future, even when they will break His covenant. And He says in Leviticus 26, verse 44, that when they are in the land of their enemies, when they've come under His judgment and have been sent into exile, He says, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break My covenant with them. This is a rejection that comes with a burning anger. And for the wicked, he does not spurn evil. He has no hatred for it. Why? Because he loves it. He's not going to hate the things that deep within his heart he loves. He won't hate it because he loves the taste of it. His sin is his greatest love, and he would rather have it than God. This is a summary of the biblical anthropology. This is the nature of man apart from Christ. He rises no higher than the devil. And what makes his sin all the more egregious is that unlike the devil, he's made in the image of God. He has a unique role, if you will, in creation as being one who is supposed to be reflecting the goodness and the character of God. That's something that's uniquely given to man. And he takes that image and he crumples it up and throws it in the trash. This is what is in man. This is what God, by His common grace, must restrain. This is the reality of the evil of man that David describes here prophetically. And when faced with a world like this, with this reality, it could be quite depressing if that's all we have to look at. I mean, just, just this past week, I, 
I saw some things from a, even a local dog trainer that I, that I know very well that was dog abuse. I mean, just the, the heinousness that men can commit. If, if, if that's all you saw, that'd be depressing. And a lot of times, that's all people do look at. That's one of the great problems that exists when people are just constantly consuming the, the, the news all the time. That they profit off of giving you the worst news all the time. Reporting on the realities of the depravity of man. Though oftentimes being deceived about how truly depraved it is. And depraved they are. You eat that, you drink it, you look at that all the time. If that's where your eyes are constantly fixed, you will be the most miserable of people. But David, David does not only look at the nature of man for its own sake. He prophesies here about the depths of the depravity of man so that he can then contrast this with the unsearchable heights of the glory and the beauty of God. He shows us the One whom we must look at to be able to walk through this world with joy even though it's saturated with much evil. He points us to God. You see, man's sin here does have a bottom. There is a point at which God will not allow him to sink any lower before he brings an end to sin. But as for God, there are no limits to His glory. And when we look to Him, even when we may be surrounded by such great evil, and even when it clings closely to us, the greatness of His glory will far surpass everything else. This is what David does in verses 5-9. to He looks to God's glory, to His character, to His person. The Old Testament theologian Derek Kidner said of verses 5-6 to that here David speaks of God as if He's a world unto Himself. And he says this because in these verses, David speaks here of the heavens and then the clouds and then the mountains and then the great deep. He speaks here of all of the most majestic aspects of creation. Who among us, for example, can look at the beauty of the sky, of the heavens, when you see a a sunset or a sunrise and the oranges and the purples and all of the painting that God has painted in the sky, who can look at that and not be in awe? Who can not be stunned by seeing great mountains? People journey across oceans, across entire lands just to see certain mountains. 
because their majesty is great. Who is not mystified by the creatures and the unsearchable places that lie at the bottom of the ocean. David speaks of all of these majestic aspects of creation only to provide a comparison to the character and nature of God. God's steadfast love, His faithfulness, His righteousness, His judgments can only even begin to be comprehended by comparing them to parts of creation that can never be exhausted, but only observed. Men may build planes to fly in the sky, but He will never wield the wind. He may summit a mountain, but He will never make the mountains quake. And He may build crafts to go to the bottom of the sea, but He will never be able to search out all of its depths. But God fills all of these things and sits above them. Heaven is His throne. The earth All of it is His footstool. And so even when creation testifies to His power and majesty and nature, His steadfast love and faithfulness, we are only able to see the bottom of His feet. And yet even when we look at the bottom of His feet, we see that they are full of Glory, and so much so that we all become like that sinful woman who could not help herself when she approached Jesus. She had to anoint his feet. It was his feet that was glorious enough for her. We see a fraction of his glory, and that fraction is enough to last the believer all eternity. There is a sense in which the Lord's glory cannot be searched, cannot be exhausted. This is one of the points that David is making when he says in verse 5 that the Lord's steadfast love extends to the heavens. It's unsearchable. And yet even though it is unsearchable, in a mysterious way, it can be truly known. Such that David can say in verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. This reminds me of what Paul says when he prays for the Ephesian Christians in his letter to them in chapter 3. And he prays in that chapter that Christians may comprehend and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I'm praying that you may know what you can't know. I'm praying that you have a knowledge of Christ, of the Lord, of God that can never reach its end. 
We are like men who ascend a mountain without a summit. We shall never conquer the mountain, but we can know it. We can explore its terrain. We can explore its crevasses. We can know it as the greatest mountain to ever be explored. And the exploration will never cease. Because you can never get to the top. And you can never exhaust God. This is who God is for the believer. For those who have been made righteous by faith. God is an endless supply of good and nourishment and strength and delights. There is a sense in which David says, that God becomes an Eden to us, like a garden for us. In verse 8, His temple, His house, is a place of feasting and abundance. And for drink, David says, men drink from the river of His delights. But even here, when David's writing this, there's a play on words because the word for delights is the same word as Eden. They're homonyms. You remember from your grammar days, right? That's a word that's spelled exactly the same, but it means two different things. You can think of an example of like bark. You've got the bark on the tree, you've got a bark from a dog. You have a homonym here. David says that man drinks from the river of the Lord's Edens, and with him is a fountain of life. Both the temple and the Garden of Eden were, of course, the places where God dwelled with men, where His presence was. But Eden, as we know, was lost, and the temple was destroyed. But the glory of the new covenant and the gospel of Christ is that now God has made His people His temple. By faith in Christ, we are sealed by the Spirit of God and God dwells within us. He is in us. and We are in Him. Though this is but a taste of good things to come, even now we are given an endless supply of His steadfast love and of His grace, of His faithfulness and righteousness. God gives to us through Christ what we need most. He gives to us Himself. If there is anything that the Christian should day after day and year after year pursue more and use all of his strength, all of his will, and all of his but little faith to pursue, it's knowing Christ, knowing him more. You will never reach the bottom. You will never get to the top. But that pursuit of knowing Christ by faith will fill you up as even we saw this morning. We're considering the gift of the Spirit. The Lord unites Himself 
to us. He gives us Himself. The wicked have no knowledge of God, but in contrast, the righteous know Him. And He knows them. And the righteous want more of Him and more of Himself is what He will give to them. Which leads us to the final part of the psalm, which speaks a brief word about biblical eschatology, where things are going, what the end will be. And it comes to us in the form of a prayer. In verse 10, David prays for what we just saw that more of God would be given to those who know Him. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know You and your righteousness to the upright of heart. He had said, God, Your steadfast love is unsearchable. It's inexhaustible. It extends to the heavens. He had said, your steadfast love is precious. And now he prays, continue it. Give more of it. Increase it. The idea here is of something being stretched or pulled out at a greater length. And David prays that for God's people, he would do this very thing. That as their days stretch out, as their days continue, as their lives go on, as their souls reach even to eternity, the Lord will cause His steadfast love to continue with them. To go before them. To be with them and behind them. And He does this very thing for us. He has given to us His Son and His Spirit and His grace and the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life with Him which is unchangeable and thus must and does necessarily stretch out and continue. And it will continue even when we take our final breath and see Him face to face. It will follow us into eternity, and it will follow us into the resurrection and the new creation to come. His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness, His determination to uphold His promises and do good for His people will not cease. But for the wicked, David says, It will not be so. Their end will be judgment. In verse 11, David prays that the Lord would protect from the wicked. Would keep him, guard him from the wicked. And then in verse 12, it's as if he's been brought to the very end of history. As if he's been transported to the end of days and he reports on what he sees. He says at the very end, he says, there, as if he's looking at something, he's pointing to something, there the evildoers 
lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. It's the same language we find in Psalm 1 when David says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, will not rise in the judgment. They fall at the end. And here it's as if David is there at the judgment and he's seeing what comes on the evildoer. They do not rise, but are thrust down. They flattered themselves while they lived, and they were unwilling to find their sin. But in the judgment, their sin will be found. It will be revealed. It is as Peter puts it in 2 Peter when speaking of the judgment that comes upon the world at the end in the day of the Lord. A judging fire will burn up all things of the old creation. And he says that the earth and the works that are done on it will be found. Using the same word here that is in our psalm. The direction that all of history is moving towards is the day of the Lord. When Christ comes to remove all sin from the earth and to establish the fullness of His kingdom with His people in a new creation. And God has testified to us and to the world that this day will come by raising Jesus from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens from which point he awaits until, as the book of Acts tells us, the restoration of all things. And the call for each one of us and the call of the Gospel is to be ready for that day. Even as Jesus says in many places in different parables, even if the Master is delayed, we are to be ready. And we ready ourselves not by our deeds or any righteousness we think we may have in ourselves. We ready ourselves by trusting in Christ and being joined to Him. And then He becomes to us our river of delights, our river of Eden. We eat from the abundance of His house and He is for us a fountain of eternal life. Let's go to the Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, even we who believe in the Lord Jesus were at one time counted only among the wicked. And the entirety of our lives was characterized by this evil nature. By Your grace, You have saved us. That old fleshly nature hangs around. 
So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand his schemes so that we would be able to put him to death every single day. I pray, Lord, for all who are here, that we would not only have a knowledge of ourselves, but that we would have a knowledge of God. And by that knowledge, our hearts would drink deeply from the fountain of life. By knowing God, we would have a fixed hope of the good things that are to come. And in preparation of those days, we would seek to conform the entirety of our lives to your will and to reflect your image. So do this work within us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.